Greetings. This is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and I'm coming to you on Anchor today so that I can present the St. Joan of Arc class that would have been regularly scheduled for Thursday morning. That means that today we'll be returning to the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John in the fifth chapter, we'll complete the fifth chapter and then make our way and hopefully complete chapter 6 before the conclusion of the lecture. These lectures uh, online will be a bit briefer than our regular Bible class. I'm limited to no more than an hour of recording time, and uh, I've found that about at the 45 or 50 minute mark, uh, we've done enough together. And so my plan is to continue to teach on a weekly basis through all of my eight class venues, posting the lectures on the podcast site so that you can keep up with me until we meet again and hopefully sooner than later. Having said that, let's pause as we always do and turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin our class today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, gracious Father, we of course thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. Grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, let me say at the outset that I miss you, and I pray that all is well with you. All is well here with my wife and I. We are secure uh, in our home and are making four ways out into the world for necessities and for exercise. The kids are well uh, to date. No one has come down with COVID-19, although the moms, each with three small children at home, now until the end of the school year, are a bit beside themselves. But uh, everyone is in good cheer, and we frequently uh, connect with each other on the platform known as Zoom, so that we can have everyone on the same computer screen. A bit chaotic, but the best we can do in these trying times. Having said that, let me draw your attention back to John chapter 5. And you'll remember the last time that we were together, we made our way into that chapter detailing the unique story found only in the Gospel of John of the man who had been paralyzed for the whole of his life, whom Jesus healed and, remember, did so on the Sabbath. In John chapter 5, in summary, in verse 8, after healing the man, Jesus saying, Rise, take up your mat and walk. Immediately the man became well, took up his mat and walked, we are going to assume, into the city of Jerusalem in very close proximity to the Temple Mount and the Temple itself. In fact, where he was located at the Pool of Bethesda was quite literally in the shadow of the Temple in Jesus' day. And we learn in verse 9 that this all happened 
on a Sabbath, and when the man was seen carrying his mat in such close proximity to the temple on the Sabbath, some Jewish religious leaders said to the man who was cured, You know, friend, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to carry your mat. He answered them, Well, the man who made me well told me, Take up your mat and walk, basically saying, Take it up with him, and they eventually will. At the end of this particular narrative, in verse 16, we have a summary statement. Therefore, the Jews, meaning specific Jewish religious leaders opposed to Jesus doing what he's done on the Sabbath, began to persecute Jesus because he did what he did on the Sabbath. Now, they challenged Jesus. Obviously, he's a public figure. He doesn't do this in private, and they were not at all pleased that he was acting in this way because this man's life was not threatened. You had a duty as a Jewish person of faith to save a life on the Sabbath if that was an option presented you, but this man had no condition that was life-threatening. He could, to their estimation, have been healed on any other day. But Jesus, in his response to them in verse 17, very important, said, My father is at work until now, so I am at work. Parenthetically, in verse 18, remember those insights from our author, John, the youngest apostle? Here's another. For this reason, the Jews tried all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also because he called God his own father, thus making himself equal to God. Now, because of that summary statement, we often think that the story ends there. But this engagement between the religious leaders and Jesus continues. Again, they're in heated conversation, one uh, with the other, at the location near the temple in Jesus' day. And that's why in verse 19, we note that Jesus answers their challenge and says to them, because they're still present in this exchange, Amen, amen, I say to you, a son cannot do anything on his own, but only what he sees his father doing. He's doubling down on this bold acclamation that he is doing the work of his father, and his father is God. So, again, a son cannot do anything on his own, but only what he sees his father doing. For what he does, his son will do also. For the Father loves his Son and shows him everything that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these so that you may be amazed. Basically, paraphrasing, I'm just getting warmed up. You've misappropriated the teaching of my Father. Of course, the Father wants to restore to ambulatory ability a man who desires to walk even if he expresses that desire on the Sabbath. For just in verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also does the Son give life to whomever he wishes. And in restoring this man's ability to walk, he's given him, well, the gift of life. He goes on to say, nor does the Father judge anyone. The religious leaders certainly stand in judgment of Jesus. 
but he has given all judgment to his Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In fact, again challenging them directly, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Amen. Amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and will not come to condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Again, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to his Son the possession of life in himself. And he gave him power to exercise judgment because he is, now Jesus speaking self-referentially, the Son of Man. So do not be amazed at this, because the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who have done wicked deeds to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, this reveals, again, the basic tenet of Judaism. Remember, Judaism, in its essence, is very simple. God created human beings and called those he created good. In fact, he called the created Adam, and subsequently the crown of his creative achievement, Eve, very good, or in Hebrew, good, good. And so he created men and women to be good. And how do you demonstrate the fact that you are good? By doing good deeds. And you see that in that summary of Jesus. The hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good deeds. You are good, and so you do good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done wicked deeds to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus goes on to say, I cannot do anything on my own. I judge as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And then he says, because remember, the experience of everyone in that arena was one of an in common engagement with John the Baptist. The religious leaders knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. Andrew and John, two of his disciples who will be named later as apostles, were working with John at the baptismal site. And so John is still in the narrative here, and he's going to be referenced now by Jesus. In verse 31, Jesus says, If I testify on my own behalf, my testimony cannot be verified, because there's no corroboration with another witness. But there is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that the testimony he gives on my behalf is true. He's referencing John the Baptist. You sent, speaking now directly to those same religious leaders, emissaries to John, and he testified to the truth. Remember, when those emissaries arrived at the baptismal site, I'll remind you of that engagement in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, uh, as John the Baptist is preaching, 
let me see if I can find that. We find that he has a few choice words to address toward these emissaries from the religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 3, in verses 7 and following, the referent point is that when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that would be emissaries sent to John from the reference point of John chapter 5 and verse 33, he said to them, they're looky-loos, you brood of vipers. Remember? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? If I could get my hands on them, I, 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 I would wring their necks, is what John is saying. Listen to his pronouncement. Produce good fruit as evidence of your repentance. Do good if you say you are good. And do not presume to say to yourselves, well, why would we need to do good? We have Abraham as our father. We can coattail into heaven with him. For I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from the stones at the bottom of this river. But even now, the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree, meaning you religious leaders, that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That is vective, directed toward Sadducees and Pharisees, who Jesus identifies in John chapter 5 and verse 33 as their emissaries. So again, that engagement, that connection, that memory of John the Baptist is right at the edge of this narrative. So back to John chapter 5, verse 33. You sent emissaries to John, and he testified to the truth. I do not accept testimony from a human being, but I say this so that you may be saved. And then speaking about John, Jesus says, he was a burning and shining lamp. And for a while, you were content to rejoice in his light. But I have testimony greater than John's. The works that the Father gave me to accomplish, these works that I perform testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. And one of those works, one of those signs, was restoring the ability to walk to a man paralyzed for 30 years. Eight years. Moreover, the Father who sent me has testified on my behalf at the baptism. Remember the voice from heaven? But you have never heard his voice or seen his form. You may have been there, but something made it impossible for you to hear my Father's voice because you do not have his word remaining in you. That's because you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. And then, in scathing criticism to those same religious leaders in verse 39, you all search the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life through them. But they, even they, testify on my behalf. But you do not want to come to me to have life. You miss the point. You study the scriptures, and they've told you specifically about who I am. I'm thinking about Isaiah chapter 53 in particular. You can read it 
on your own. You'll see hints of the Messiah almost in every single verse. I want to pause and return just briefly to one of the verses I read, verse 35, when Jesus is talking about John, listen to the praise and honor he will accord this cousin of his. He was a burning and shining lamp, and for a while you were content to rejoice in his light. You may remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew reminds us of the honor Jesus accorded to John when he's speaking of John in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. Some messengers from John the Baptist have arrived and they are to associate themselves with Jesus so that when their leader, John the Baptist's life is required of them, they will know where to go. The emissaries arrive, engage with Jesus, return to John, and in Matthew chapter 11, and verse 11, Jesus turns to those around him and says, Amen. I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. What higher praise can you accord a cousin, a friend, a man like John the Baptist than that? Among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. And then again in John chapter 5, he was a burning and shining lamp. And for a while, you were content to rejoice in his light. John the Baptist and this relationship he has with Jesus is central to understanding the gospel of John. Now, I come back to John chapter 5 and verse 41. He says, then in summary, I do not accept human praise. Moreover, I know speaking now directly to the religious leaders, that you do not have the love of God in you. I came in the name of my Father, but you do not accept me. Yet, if another comes in his own name, say, a fellow like Barabbas, you will accept him. How can you believe when you accept praise from one another and do not seek the praise that comes from the only God? Now, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. Indicative, I would imagine, that the majority of religious leaders there challenging Jesus because of what he's done on the Sabbath were Sadducees. And remember, the Sadducean religious party accepted only the first five books of the Bible as inspired by God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are the narratives associated with the authorship of Moses. And so, if he says, I am informing you that the one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope, he's saying that you have searched the scriptures, memorized those five books, and even they, in each text, speak of me. Remember the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, that mysterious figure who appears, for instance, in 
the flames of the burning bush that's not consumed and identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How can God be the God of the dead? He's the God of the living. And again, this would challenge the Sadducees to read these texts in a new way. He goes on to say for in verse 46, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? How will you ever understand my teaching? Now, as John chapter 5 comes to a conclusion, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He was there to celebrate one of the religious feasts of the Jews. That's come to a conclusion. And so now in chapter 6, we find Jesus back in ministry headquarters, the ministry headquarters of Galilee. So after this, Jesus went in chapter 6 across the Sea of Galilee. This is at a later date. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick, not only in Jerusalem, but obviously in Galilee as well. Remember, his ministerial format was one of healing, followed by preaching, and then, then, and only then, teaching. And so the healing is what drew the attention of so many. And in John's gospel, those miraculous healings are called signs. They are pointing the way to Jesus. So a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. And when he arrived, and we would note because of our study of the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke, that this site would be on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee near the ancient fishing village and home to seven of the 12 original apostles, a place called Bethsaida. Jesus went up on a mountain or from the shore, moving toward higher ground, and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast Passover was near, and when Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip. Now, Philip, we learn in chapter 1, verse 44, is from Bethsaida. So, he would be the local who would know his way around the busterous fishing village. And so he says to Philip, where can we buy enough food for them to eat? Now, thousands are finding their way to Jesus on foot, principally, and he says this uh, tongue-in-cheek. He himself, we read in verse 6, said this to test Philip, because he, meaning Jesus himself, knew what he was going to do. Well, Philip takes the bait, and he answers, and he says to the Lord, Lord, 200 days wages worth of food would not be enough for each one of them to have even the smallest portion. And again, he hears himself say that and realizes that probably wasn't what Jesus wanted him to do. Now, one of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon, Andrew and Simon had both been raised by their father, John, in the same village of Bethsaida, said 
unto him, You know, there is a young boy here who has in his possession five barley loaves, each loaf about the size of a man's fist, and two fish. But what good are these for so many? And Jesus nodded approvingly and said, Well, we'll see. So I had the people recline. Now, there was a great deal of grass in that place. That's why we noted that the celebration of the Feast of Passover was near. So it's the spring time of the year. The hills are verdant with the appearance of new grass. So the men reclined about 5,000 in number. Now, we know that men, biblically, defines males ages 20 to 50. There were certainly males younger than 20 and males older than 50 among those assembled and also women and young girls. And so all of those collectively would take this number of 5,000 and perhaps quite easily double it. Keep that in mind. It's a vast number of people. Whatever number of men we would double. If it was 1,000, it would be 2,000. If it was 3,000, it would be 6,000. Again, the number of people there is not going to be fed by five barley loaves and two fish. So in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks to God for the gift of that food and then distributed them to those who were reclining and also as much of the fish as they wanted. Another sign. This, the miracle of multiplication. It's part of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel account. It is very evocative of God's provision of manna in the wilderness. Now, when they had their fill, he said to his disciples, gather the fragments left over so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them and they filled 12 wicker baskets with the frag fragments from the five barley loaves that had been more than they could eat. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is truly the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. Now, the people are making reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, when Moses informs the Israelites that he will not be the one to lead them into the promised land. He consoles them with the message that one day another prophet will rise up like himself to lead Israel. And from that point on, the expectation was most certainly by the time of Jesus that that promised prophet would be the Messiah. That's why in your Bibles, this is truly the prophet. The word prophet is capitalized, right? That means this man is the Messiah, the one who is to come into the world. Because Moses prayed, and manna came down from heaven, and our ancestors 1,500 years earlier, for a period of 40 years, ate as much as they wanted. It satisfied them completely, but they couldn't store it for the next day. And here we have a multiplication of bread which produces a super abundant amount of food, significant in amount so that we collect 12 wicker baskets full. Those wicker baskets, by the way, are empty and would have been on the vessel that Jesus would have sailed across the Sea of Galilee in. 
those wicker baskets would be used after a night of commercial fishing to separate the fish for market preparation. Again, since it's the afternoon hours and you ply the waters of the Sea of Galilee at night, those baskets would be empty in the boats and would be then used to collect those fragments. Now, in verse 15, a very important narrative point. Jesus, at this point, knew that the general folk assembled all around him were going to come and carry him off to make him king. In the New International Version of the Bible, a translation into English, much like the NAB, there is an additional insight given, since Jesus knew that they were going to come and carry him off to make him king by force, without his consent. And he didn't want that to happen. He withdrew again to the mountain to be alone. He went deeper into the wilderness, having dismissed the people, right, who had had their fill of the fish and the bread. They're going to return to their villages. But Jesus doesn't want to give them opportunity to, in a singular voice, proclaim him to be a temporal king, because that's not who he is. By moving farther away into the wilderness, he goes into an area where he had been most certainly in his exorcism ministry, casting out demons. Remember, we're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels met the man who was filled with 2,000 demons that Jesus had to drive out of and send into 2,000 swine that were on a hilltop nearby. So if you're casting out demons, you always cast them out to the east, and Jesus is moving farther to the east. He knows that no one will follow him. Now, when it was evening, his disciples went down to the shore of the sea, and they embarked in a boat, and their intent, of course, was to row their way, against the wind, across the sea to Capernaum, where the home of Peter and Andrew and so many of the others were. It had already grown dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and they assumed, well, we'll make our way and we'll find him tomorrow, more than likely imagining that Jesus will make a journey on foot around the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, as they're rowing against the wind, we read the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. But when they had rowed about three or four miles and, and were rather near their destination, remember, these are seasoned Sea of Galilee commercial fishermen. They, in the light of the early dawn, saw Jesus walking on the water, coming near the boat, and they began to be afraid, not understanding what was happening. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they wanted to take him into the boat, but the boat immediately arrived at the shore to which they were heading. Again, a very interesting point of reference that we can glean from the Gospel of John. This 
particular miracle, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, seems to the uninformed reader to be rather self-serving. I mean, was that necessary? Did Jesus have to walk across the surface of the sea, the churning waters? Why not wait to the dawn of the next day and make his way by foot? Well, remember, if he had done that, he would have had to pass through Bethsaida and a significant number of other villages where only the previous afternoon he had displayed his divine authority, Moses-like, to call bread down from heaven, a new manna miracle. And if the people yesterday afternoon were prone to proclaim him king by force, wouldn't they be also motivated to do so, and perhaps even more so, the next day? And so we couldn't take that chance. And so walking across the waters of the Sea of Galilee, he would have assumed he had given significant time enough for the disciples in their boat to make it to land, and they were nearly there when he appeared out of the early morning midst. Now, he says to them, and this is very important, it is I. A wooden translation, to be sure. Uh, rather, uh, more to the point, is he trying to say, don't worry, fellas, it's me. Now, in the original Greek of the Gospel of John, the words of Greek that we translate as, it is I, are ego, me. These are the Greek words that we read in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses hears, because he's requested to hear it, the name of God. When God reveals himself to Moses. Remember, Moses needs to know who it is who's sending him on his mission. God says to him, and I'll remind you of this narrative in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11. Moses says to God, as the conversation continues between Moses and the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, who am I? In verse 11 of Exodus 3, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God answered, the angel of the Lord answered from the burning bush, I will be with you, and this will be your sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God at this mountain. You'll come back here. But Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and say to him, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell him? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And then he added, this is what you will tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, again, in translating into English from the Hebrew, we have the English translation, I am. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint has in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3, the words, ego, me, And that is the exact Greek phrase that John accords Jesus saying as he walks across the surface of the deep. When he sees that they're afraid, he says, ego, me." He announces himself as God. 
and even more to the point, is found in Mark chapter 6. Remember Mark chapter 6, we studied this same narrative of Jesus walking on the water. I'll pick up the narrative in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and proceed him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And when he had taken leave of them, he went off to the mountain to pray. Verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was far out on the sea, he, Jesus, alone on the shore. Then he saw that they were tossed about while rowing, for the wind was against them. He could feel the stiff breeze in his face. He knew that they were struggling wherever they were out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. That, that would be an obvious conclusion. So he waits, and at about the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them walking on the sea. And this little detail in verse 48, he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought, well, it's a ghost, they cried out. They had all seen him, and they were terrified. But at once he spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage, ego, me. He announces himself as God. But even more intriguing is that last sentence in Verse 48, he meant to pass by them. The whole point of this sign was to reveal his divinity to them. How do we know that? Well, because we remember Exodus chapter 33. Remember Exodus chapter 33, one of our favorite chapters in the book of Exodus, is all about Moses' intimacy with God. And everything Jesus had done the day before was Mosaic-like. To the point that those who had been filled to capacity with bread and fish wondered if Jesus might not be the new Moses, the prophet promised by Moses. Well, in Exodus chapter 33, in verse 18, Moses is engaged in conversation with the Lord. And he says with great hope, please let me see your glory. And the Lord answered and said, Well, I will make all my goodness pass before you, all my glory, and I will proclaim my name, Ego me, I am, Lord, before you, because I will show favor to whom I will, and I will grant mercy to whom I will. But Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Here, continued the Lord, is a place near me, where you shall station yourself on the rock, or facing inward, a cave. When my glory, here it is, passes by, I will set you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand so that you may see my trailing glory, but my face may not be seen. This memory of God passing by Moses is what Mark is remembering in that last line of Mark 6, 48. Jesus intended to pass them by, to reveal his divinity to them. And he does so when he addresses them, saying, take courage, ego, a me, it is I. No, 
he announces the name of God. He identifies himself as the Father. Now, I come back then to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6 and verse 21, of course, they wanted to take him into the boat, but the boat immediately arrived at the shore to which they were heading. Now, the next day, and we're already there, right? It's dawn of that day, so later that morning, the crowd that remained across the sea, near the village of Bethsaida, for instance, and other villages as well, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not gone along with his disciples in that boat, but only his disciples had left. In the meantime, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they had eaten the bread, when the Lord gave thanks. Interesting. Other boats from Tiberias. Tiberias is a Roman military naval installation. It's where Rome's military hegemony was located on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. If boats came from Tiberias, more than likely they were boats captained by military personnel of the Roman army because they would be interested in why such huge numbers of people were gathering on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Were they planning revolution? Were they plotting some sort of seditious activity? And so again, their curiosity has risen, and some of these boats from Tiberias are making their way to Capernaum as well. People know where Jesus is headquartered. They know that he will eventually end up there, so they make their way there in order to engage him once again. So, when they found him, in verse 25 of John chapter 6, across the sea, they said to him, remember, hoping that he would have passed through their villages so that they could make him king by force. Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen, I say to you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but rather because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for food that perishes, but rather for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Look what effort you've taken to arrive here now, hoping that I will perform yet again another miracle of multiplication and will return to a Moses-like existence. But I've got so much more for you than that. So don't work for food that perishes, but rather for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now they said to him, Well, what? Can we do to accomplish the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he sent. So they continue, challenging him. What sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? Just one more miracle. That's all we need. What can you do? And then they remind him that our ancestors ate manna, in the desert. And they quote from scripture, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. God gave bread from heaven to eat. 
So Jesus, hearing that, says to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread, though, from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, I'm going to leave you on a cliff. This is as far as I can go today. Next week, we'll open class with a section unique to the Gospel of John called the Bread of Life Discourse. Don't miss it. And if you enjoy it, like it, share it with others. This will be our format for the next few weeks until we can gather again at St. Joan of Arc. But until then, please never forget what great students you are. Be well, be safe, be prayerful, and I'll see you when I see you. But until then, that's all the teacher can do.